In this episode of Interviews with the CEO, I successfully managed to postpone my upcoming performance review by interviewing my boss, Chair of British Fencing, Irish Sailor and Olympian Mark Little. I heard the story of how a 10-year-old boy went from messing around in boats with his brother during the summer holidays to the starting line at the Olympics and how a momentary loss of concentration could have had significant consequences for both his performance and Irish international relations. Looking forward to Tokyo and Paris, Mark also shares his hopes for what lies ahead in the world of British fencing. We also get the chance to briefly talk about his favourite football club and what lessons fencing might learn from football. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Hi, Georgina. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about growing up in Ireland and how you got into sailing. Well, we lived um, in Dunleary, which is in um, south part of Dublin, near the coast. And my parents weren't sailors, but because we lived near the sea, uh, we started going to the local sailing club when I was 10 years of age, my uh, younger brother, who was nine. And we uh, went down to the local sailing club um, all summer, really, um, from the age of 10. And the great thing about um, school, summer school holidays in Dublin was that they're three months long. So you get uh, three months of nonstop sailing. And really, that's that's where I learned how to sail, got all my experiences. We, we used to go down to the sailing club literally all day, every day for three months on end. And yeah, we started doing local competitions um, after a, a year or two. But I didn't sail outside the summer school holidays until I was 15. So um, most of my experiences were initially in the in the local sailing club or in, in other sailing clubs uh, nearby. So I know there'll be some parents listening to this thinking, where were your parents during this time? Were they were they letting you out age 10 onto the water or were they there in the boat with you directing every move? No, these, these were uh, these were summer uh, courses. You, you joined up for the summer. In first year, I think I was sharing a boat with my uh, brother. It's just a, an optimist, it's called. It's a single-handed boat because we were starting out we had to sail together even though it was a single-hander in our first year and i think in the second year we were both pretty keen on it so we we managed to uh, get a second boat and and they these were actually um uh, wooden optimists they were probably home built they were both second hand but they were probably home built and everyone had the same type of boat so it didn't really make any difference they weren't top notch racing machines because they were they were all the same so no we 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 were out on our own on the water doing uh, little races and training and uh, just having fun really i think that the whole my, my um, when I think back on uh, growing up sailing, it was it was all about doing lots of it, having fun. I always seem to think back. It was sunny, but of course it wasn't sunny all the time. But you you, you think back that it uh, was at the time, and uh, we just had a great time. We really enjoyed it. We enjoyed the racing, and we were allowed to get on with it. And I guess that as these were summer camps, these would have been club coaches that ran them and gave you that kind of fun experience that has kept you passionate about the sport until now. Yeah, well, that's that's um, that's exactly it. They were they were typically teenagers and they're, um, you know, I guess they were 16, 18, 20. Um, they 
maybe they seemed older at the time, but looking back on it, that's the age they were. And they were just slightly more experienced um, sailors who had uh, instructor qualifications. And uh, it was a great job for them. They got, they got paid for it and they were out on the water all summer, you know, have, having a great time. And they, they were passing on their, their experience. And, you know, some of those instructors, uh, one of them I, I met back in Dunleary uh, two summers ago, my very first instructor, um, Paul. And uh, he, 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 he was down in the sailing club and I just bumped into him. So many of these people are still involved in the sport. We, we all developed a, a lifelong passion for it, I guess. And moving on and missing out a big chunk in the middle uh, and thinking a bit about the Olympics and you represented Ireland in the 1996 Atlanta Games, didn't you? I, I did, but it was a, I can tell you it was a long road before I, I, I got there. Um, I guess when I was a teenager, I started sailing the laser, which is a, a single-handed boat, um, and it was the most popular dinghy in the in the world in in the eighties. And I, I did a lot of that, uh, mostly at at home in Dublin, but started doing international competitions. And then when I went to university in Dublin, um, I continued doing that during the um, the summer holidays and any other free time I had. I did international events, worlds, and Europeans. And the last Europeans I did uh, quite well at was uh, just before starting work at the end of university, I came fifth. And the thing I remember back then was that uh, a lot of my competitors in Europe were thinking about um, doing Olympic campaigns and moving on to um, other classes because the laser wasn't an Olympic class back then. And I always thought it was a bit unfair that uh, there wasn't that opportunity in uh, for, for me. Um, you had to be the only single-hander in the Olympics back then was a was for uh, bigger people that you needed to be quite heavy, and uh, and that wasn't going to suit me. Um, the, the boats that suited me were were all keel boats, multi multi-person, big boats, big money, and the chance of doing that as a campaign out of Ireland in the mid 80s was quite low, um, given the, the money involved. So I, I kind of resigned to um, starting work and continuing to, to, to sail domestically, no, no thought of the Olympics. And then suddenly, out of the blue, the laser became an Olympic class after the Barcelona Olympics. Um, I was almost 30 years of age. And like many sailors um, around the world in, in my position who missed out, the chance to go to the Olympics, we all started saying, "Hey, look, maybe there's an opportunity here. Maybe we could, maybe we can give it a go." And we all ended up um, competing uh, for uh, the slot in our country. There was only one per country, and sometimes it was the older guys like me who, who won out. In other cases, it was the younger guys. Um, for instance, Ben Ainsley was only a uh, 17 or 18 when he went to Atlanta, and he beat all the older guys who were more experienced. So. The dream suddenly came uh, alive at that point and I, I had the opportunity um, to do it. And you mentioned there a little bit about you, the campaign that you put together. And there are certainly, when we spoke earlier, we spoke about the similarities between creating a campaign for your sailing and what life is, is like currently for some of our top unfunded fencers who essentially have to create their own journey to the top of the sport. And yeah, it'd be really interesting to know a little bit more around how you constructed that, how you put it together and, and what athletes today can learn from that. 
Well, I, I guess I was lucky, Georgina, that um, I, I was a bit older. I'd worked for almost eight years after university by the time the opportunity came up. So I, I, I guess, had the experience to, to plan a lot of it myself. And really what, what I did was I, I started off doing international competitions again for the first time while I was working um, to get a feel for what the level of competition was and what sort of effort I would need to put in, what sort of areas I would need to address um, as part of that. Um, and I did that for, for two years and then decided, look, there was a, I felt a realistic chance of getting to the games and doing well. So I, I was working for a big American technology company. I, I decided to pack that in, uh, gave back the keys to the company car and uh, went full time. And uh, it is a bit of a shock because suddenly you, you've got no income and uh, actually there's only really you. So I think it's, it's a matter of pulling together um, the resources that you have available, the financial resources, but also um, friends and family that can help you, uh, other people in the sport that can work with you as training partners, and and pulling together a plan to address what what needed to be um, done. For for me, I, I ended up moving um, to London to be based uh, during the, the full time part of it. But uh, to be honest, I didn't didn't do any sailing there. I did some physical fitness training, but I, I spent all of my time abroad on tra a training camp in warm weather locations, um, and uh, with pulling together training groups, working with different coaches, um, trying to address the areas that I thought would be important to the to the most important ones. Um, so I'm happy to talk about it on the fitness side. Um, it's not often something that is seen as important to certainly then in sailing and the mental preparation side of things. So I did a, a lot of work on that. And, and of course, the financial side is, you know, that's that's tough for any uh, or most um, top athletes in any sport trying to pull the financial resources together to be able to um, support, you know, Olympic campaign with a lot of travel um, and that sort of thing. And I guess you have to take a you have to take a very proactive approach to dealing with that, going out and trying to solve the problem. Luckily, we we did have some funding available, but uh, that certainly didn't cover everything. And you're relying on family and friends and uh, patrons and sponsors and that sort of thing. And it's not delivered to you on a plate. It's something you have to go out and and get uh, for yourself. I think that's the thing about these campaigns. They, you know, you you're doing them. For yourself and whether you succeed at the end or not it's you're on a journey to to learn and to develop and at the end of the day if you succeed you can be happy in yourself if you don't you can uh, reflect on on uh, what could be done differently next time but no one owes you a, a result at the end of the day I think. So I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about Atlanta I was actually watching a video of one of the races, which I think you did win, that was race three for, for the sailing fans in um, in the audience. But to me, it looked absolutely terrifying. <laughs> so first of all, as a fencer, um, we're an indoor sport. And for me, I chose an indoor sport for a reason. Um, it's out of, of the cold and the wet, and I'm just talking about the weather. But there you are in these tiny little boats. 
uh, the waves, the wind, and uh, you were, I think they were heading towards the sort of marker in the sea that you're turning around. And I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. What is going through your mind when, you, when you're in a, a tiny little boat uh, uh, in a race like that? Well, um, you'd be glad to hear my friends and family are sick and tired of hearing about race three in the 1996 Olympics. But the thing about any skill-based sport, sailing, fencing, is you develop the skills and experience over many, many years. And it's it's not something that can be acquired in a, a short period of time. It's not something that can be bypassed. You've got to put in the hours and it and you get used to um, the environment. So I, I've been used to being in a boat on my own from the age of ten, as I was saying earlier. So being out on the water is you know is is no different to that. And and you you are putting in long hours on you know as a full time athlete, but in the years before that as well, in terms of the training and competition. So it all takes. Um, you know, you, you get used to it. You get used to the you develop the skills as you go along. I think you you know you mentioned about the what's going through my mind. I think it lead that you know that leads into some of the mental uh, preparation aspects of any sport, including sailing, and especially I think a skill based sport. I love um, a quote from Michael Johnson's uh, book, um, the the American sprinter who's a multi gold medal winner where he, he talks about having run um, his races thousands and thousands of times in his mind. And he's basically doing mental rehearsal. And I guess to an outsider like me, I kind of think, well, 200 meters is a, is a very unidimensional sort of thing. What is it, why would you need to run it so many times in your mind? And if you think about a sport like sailing or fencing, for that matter, I think the need to... Um, do mental rehearsal or visualization of all the different things that can happen in a competition or in a race, um, then it's it's boundless, it's limitless. And I I think that's an area where certainly um, elite athletes spend an awful lot of their time is, is the visualization and the mental rehearsal to deal with all the different scenarios that come up in the competition. And, and allowing them to stay in the frame or focused during the actual competition and using all sorts of techniques to, to stay like that. And then going alongside that, there's the, the techniques that you practice around the distraction elements. You know, when things go wrong, how do you make sure you get back in focus to keep on track? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the same is true in fencing, right? If, uh, you know, a referee gives you... Um, gives a score against you uh, by mistake or by error then uh, you can't afford to let that affect your performance and you you have to train you have to train your mind to react in the right way both in competition but also in training you've got to act like that in training so that you your mind gets used to dealing with these sort of distractions or refocus things during the competition um and it because it doesn't doesn't just happen by switching a button it happens through practice like any sort of acquiring a physical skill these are kind of like mental skills so when, when you're out in in the boat in a race like that you you have a pretty good idea without having to consciously think about it what you need to be doing next where you need to be positioned um and you know the same thing applies to the wind it's uh you know it's a it's you know you develop an intuitive sense of the wind and a feel for the wind and what what it's doing and how it's changing direction um minutely 
but they're not things you're born with. They're things that you develop um, intuitively um, over over time. People often confuse them with something that you might inherit, uh, but but they're not. They're just acquired from lots and lots of time spent doing, um, in this case, sailing. But I think it applies to, to lots of sport. I think that's absolutely spot on, Mark. And certainly, as it, you're correct in that fencing is also one of these sports that it just takes up a, a large a number of years to gain the experience necessary to compete at a high level. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would would add, I'm 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 fascinated that you really do have the environment going on. That at least in in fencing we do have a static piece. Um, and we pretty much, as I mentioned before, we're, we're fairly confident that we know what the conditions are going to be like in the venue. Yes. Um, whereas in sailing, there is always that, that safety element that, that's such a huge part of what you do. And so I have a fun question around what is the worst thing that's ever happened to you at sea and whether you've ever had to be rescued? Well, rescued, I don't... Uh, I guess I have uh, maybe two scenarios on that. One was when I was uh, much younger, uh, probably only 16. Um, and uh, in those days, I was sit- still sailing a laser. I was out one Tuesday evening. Um, it was starting to get dark. And in those days, the car ferry used to leave from Dunleary to go to Holyhead at uh, quarter to nine in the evening. And it was an offshore breeze, so it was, you know, ships around when it's offshore because it's coming off the land. And in those days, you were allowed to wear uh, weight jackets, which were basically um, uh, jackets with um, uh, water compartments in them that you could fill up. And they were, uh, I think, four kilos or something like that. So they were quite heavy. Um, obviously, they're neutral in the water. But I remember... Um, uh, capsizing in the mouth of the harbour um, on the way in because of the gusting wind and uh, got really tired very quickly because the, while it was okay in the water, while I was trying to get out of the water into the boat, it was with, with this weight jacket, it was absolutely terrifying. And all I could remember was the lights on the car ferry starting to uh, move. Um, luckily, I managed to to get out of that Um and uh, but it, it did make a, a lasting lasting impression on me. I talked earlier about um, giving up my job to train full time for the Olympics. Um, two years I've made it. I'm lining up for the start of the first race of the Olympics. It's a nine race series, and uh, I, I was warming up before the start and looked down at my watch and I accidentally sailed into the Fijian boat. And I put a hole in the Fijian <laughs> boat, no. uh, and they only they managed to tie the boat onto a rescue boat. His laser would have sunk. And uh, but the unfortunate thing about that was uh, the rules are such that although you can do uh, exonerate yourself um, before the start of the race, when you do serious damage to another boat, and I think this could have been it was classified as serious damage if it was enough to sink them, um, you get disqualified in a hearing afterwards, uh, after the first race. So I, I knew this was going to happen. And this, uh, so I started my first race at the Olympics knowing that I, I would get a result, but I would be disqualified later in the, the day on that. And dealing with that um, is part of the, the whole management around distraction control. And that was uh, that was a pretty big uh, distraction when you think about it. You, you, you've given up so much and you think you've thrown it away. But luckily, some of the training kicked in on that. And I had a good second race that day. 
And then after the hearing that night, where I got disqualified, the next morning is the morning I went out and won the third race. Um, so I put that some of that down to uh, having built up the resilience, uh, you know, in, in, in the years beforehand to be able to deal with situations like that when they do come up. And I would imagine that um, crashing into your opponent's boats at the Olympic level is not a common occurrence, or is it? Certainly not to uh, damage it like that. I don't think I've ever done that in uh, uh, 40 years of sailing uh, before or since. Um, so, um, yes, it was, a, it was a bit of a shock. I, it was kind of just a freak sort of thing. Um, um, so it's, it's not that common, no. So fast forward now today and you are the chair of British Fencing. And one of the questions that we were desperate to ask you was, was this part of your plan to um, to start a new career as a pirate, combining your sailing and fencing skills? And if so, how's that going for you? Uh, did, did, I don't know how long it took you to think up that uh, little um, line. No, it. Uh, to be honest, I, I, I don't know. I didn't know anything about fencing before um, the opportunity with fencing came along. Um, some uh, and obviously I didn't get involved in fencing to teach um, you how to improve your FA technique, Georgina. But uh, I, I think there's an awful lot of similarities between um, certainly sport um, at, at all levels, grassroots level, but up through the pathway, performance pathway in sports to the elite level. And uh, a lot of the terminology is the same. A lot of the things that top athletes need to do is the same. Uh, a lot of the disciplines, a lot of the way they're selected and managed are, are similar. So I, I think there's... Um, so a lot of what I've learned over the years um, from uh, sailing is directly applicable to a sport like fencing. Obviously, not the skills-based aspects of uh, fencing technique. It's not uh, it's not relevant, but um, lots of the other parts uh, are relevant and, uh, and and I think are are applicable no matter what sport you're in um, at an elite level. Um, so, you know, for instance, my, my experience in um, on the physical training aspect of things um, in, in, you know, when I was sailing full time as a, as a, as a sailor, we in the, in the mid 90s, we, we started to train like um, real athletes in the sense of physical training programs with VO2 max testing and interval training and, uh, using heart rate monitors at the time when that was really only coming in. Nowadays, any um, athletes in any sport, especially skill-based sports, are training like that, um, no matter what uh, you know what the sport, because that becomes a, a prerequisite for for doing well at at the top level. And uh, if you're not doing that sort of um, uh, stuff, then I, I think you're limiting your your potential at the end of the day. So I think that overall there are, there's a lot of common um, threads that 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 run with this, but. Uh, being a pirate wasn't uh, wasn't top of my list, I have to say. Thank you, Mark. Looking ahead now, we have another year till Tokyo and what will be four years to Paris. And what are your hopes and and dreams for British fencing during this time? Obviously, it's been desperately disappointing for the athletes that we're hoping to get to um, Tokyo with that being postponed and. You know, I know how 
much effort some of those athletes would have put in and uh, how important it was given the decisions I've made in the past over trying to pursue an Olympic dream. So I have a lot of sympathy for those athletes and I, I think it's a matter of trying to, for, for them, managing the, the mental side of things as, as much as possible and trying to you know keep focused and use the techniques that they've um, built up to manage resilience to 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 get through uh, this period. I think moving on from Tokyo, as you know, um, Georgina, our our world class program was disbanded after um, the Rio Games, and in many ways, I think we've been rebuilding since then, and we've made a lot of progress. Uh, we've we've managed to uh, use our athlete development program in. Uh, which is funded by uh, Sport England, to put in place um, a number of things at the next level down from the, the, the senior elite level that uh, will provide you know, a, a good uh, funnel a pathway for those athletes coming through. Um, and I think we want to build on that program as, as we bring it up uh, towards the senior elite level, and uh, I think some of those things are, have been really uh, great for fencing. Um, the inclusiveness, uh, the involvement of all six weapons, the, the focus on athletes taking responsibility for their own programs, a change in culture and attitude, the involvement and uh, development of homegrown coaches as they get more experienced. These are all things that I, I hope we're going to be able to bring um, together in a holistic program that works for um, the senior elite athletes all the way uh, down to, to the younger fencers and athletes. So I, I think that's, that's going to be exciting. And I think a number of interesting things are coming out of that is, you know, the, the development, you, you and your team have been working on the, the pathway and the description of what the pathway is and describing that in more detail in a very scientific um, way. And, and I think that's, it, it's going to be great to, to share that more with the community over the next couple of years uh, as we develop that, uh, that overall program. Great. Well, that's fantastic to hear about what I'll be up to in the next four years. <laughs> Thanks for that, Mark. But yes, I, I, I certainly would add to that and say that we are really excited about what we, we can and will be putting in place for athletes across our performance pathway, both in the run-up to Tokyo and Paris after that. So a last question for you. Um, I believe you're an Arsenal fan, is that right? I am. And it really is just about when you look at a big football club like Arsenal and their hugely passionate fans and followers and their community engagement, what do you think fencing could learn from a big sport like football? Ah, uh, Well, that's uh, I, I think the community development um, is a side of uh, big football clubs that sometimes goes a little bit under the radar. So I, I live in Islington, so I'm actually... a uh, a local um, supporter of Arsenal. That's really why I support uh, Arsenal. And not alone do they do a whole load of things within the community around social mobility and cohesion. They also do an awful lot of programs outside uh, Islington in, in developing parts of the world. And I think that's something that 
should be to, to all sports. And and I, as you know, Georgina, we we, we agree that uh, at the board level and uh, you and some of your team have been working on this that that um, using fencing as a sport for um, supporting social change and mobility in society, you know, we, we agreed was, was very important. It's an important role that, that we think British fencing has is to, to use fencing as, as part of that movement. And we, we've added to the board in the last year um, some experience in that area. We have a new chair of the British Fencing Charity who comes from a fundraising background in uh, social change, using sport for social change. And, and, and that's an area that I think I'm certainly excited by, and I know it's an area that, that you're very interested in. And I think in general, that's something that, you know, sport, you know, should embrace, of course, all sport uh, should, should embrace. And, and it's something, in fairness, I think um, the football clubs have, have done pretty well and don't always get the, uh, the credit they deserve on that. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Okay, it's a pleasure. Thank you.